Turn away from our series in Joshua this morning, and um, I'm going to take a closer uh, a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. You don't, don't, don't go there quite yet, because I'm going to take you somewhere else first. But um, yeah, this morning I felt like I was bringing more of an exhortation. You guys know that like our church is a teaching church, a Bible teaching church, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, usually I come and I like teach. And this morning I felt like the Lord said, exhort, that that's what this message is about. Now, exhortation in Scripture is about coming alongside of someone and taking hold of them and saying, come on, we're going this way, and we're going to do this. And it makes me think of uh, the picture of Moses when his arms grew weary and the Scripture and Ben and her came around on either side of him and they held up his arms and and they helped him along in the battle. And so we're going to go away from our usual teaching pattern this morning, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, and instead, I think, have an exhortation and move around from Scripture to Scripture. So if you get your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Okay, Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be up on the screen. Welcome to those who are with us online. Great to have you with us this morning, too. And uh, so let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord, we just thank you for the great privilege it is to uh, sing your praise this morning, to say, great are you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that time of worship. Thank you, Lord, that we have the great privilege also of just being together as the body of Christ, the family of God. Lord, we don't want to take this for granted. And so, Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you for our church family. Lord, thank you for those that are here. I pray, God, that you would just, uh, that your spirit would speak to us this morning through your word, that we'd be strengthened, that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be pointed more to Jesus, that you'd fix our eyes on the finish line this morning, God, and that you would pour out just a, a spirit of grace upon us and upon the t- on, on your word this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet, so Matthew, uh, take you to Matthew chapter 27. Of course, this is where... Matthew gives his breakdown of the account of Jesus' death. We know the gospel story, right? You guys, we know this, that the scripture tells us that men and women are designed, they were made, they were created for a relationship with their Father in heaven, and that relationship has been busted, it's been smashed. Sin has broken it. It's a division in that relationship that's so significant, so massive, that there's nothing that any man, woman, child, young, old can do to bring reconciliation to that relationship. But Jesus did it. Matthew tells us about it. He tells us about the work of the cross, how Jesus went to that cross on the hill of Calvary. He bore in himself the punishment for our sins. His blood was shed on our behalf, and his blood, uh, his life was given for our lives, and his, as his life was poured out, uh, he died on that cross, and the scripture tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again, we're brought into relationship with our Father in heaven, we are given the gift of abundant life, of eternal life, and uh, Matthew tells this account of Jesus, the descriptions of what happened to Jesus on the cross, and it's amazing Um, Some of the things that he tells us, and I love this one part of it, it's in verse 51. So if you're there, 51, Matthew chapter 27, it says this about when Jesus died. It says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. 
Now, Matthew goes on, he tells us other crazy stuff that happened, like dead people coming out of their tombs, coming to life and being raised from the dead. But he tells this amazing part of the story about the curtain of the temple that was torn in two. Now, the curtain that was in the temple separated the, the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was that area of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, where once a year the high priest would go into the holy place, take the blood of the sacrifice, apply it to the mercy seat, and atonement would be made. The, the, the sins of God's people would be covered for that year, and there would be forgiveness. And only one man had access to that place, the most holy of holies, the, the high priest, and, and that just once a year. And so the curtain cut off the presence of God, cut off the people of God from the presence of God, and there was only one mediator, that high priest who could go in there, and no one else was permitted to enter. Now, history tells us lots of cool stuff about this curtain that separated. Josephus says this, that it was the thickness of a man's hand. It's amazing. Can you imagine what that thing would weigh? Man, four, about four inches thick. It was 30 cubits, so, or sorry, 20 cubits, so 30 feet tall, 30 feet square. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday uh, in, in our house that, that it wouldn't have, you know, it's not like a curtain here where you split the curtain and going through the middle. You would have had to go around it. It's one solid piece. Josephus said this, that if you hooked up pairs of oxen on either side of the curtain and, and you tried to tear that curtain, couldn't be done. Couldn't be torn by humans. I, I was thinking about this. Does anybody remember the power team? I don't know. That's like my generation of youth group back in the day. The power team, anybody? Boy, it was, yeah, you remember them? They were awesome, man. They would do these feats of strength. They would like cruise all over North America. There's big, burly weightlifter dudes, and they would go to youth conventions and youth group events, and, and they would do these feats of strength. I saw them at Glad Tidings once. I saw them at History Maker a few times. I mean, they were all the rage back, you know, in the early 90s. Lisa knows. And... Uh, they would, they would get telephone books, you know, the big old thick ones that your parents used to stick under your butt so you'd be at the right height at the dinner table. They'd take those things and just tear them in half and do these feats of strength. Well, I was with a man's hand, but this curtain that hung in the temple, there's no tearing that curtain in half, could not have been torn in half, and it barred everyone from the presence of God except for the high priest. But when it was torn that day, at the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, access to God was made available for all to come to him through faith in his son, Jesus. And light, light shone in, in the darkness. When Jesus died, that curtain was torn, and, and Matthew says it was torn from top to bottom. You would think. You, know, you would think that if it was a man tearing it, you would start from the bottom, but it was the Lord who tore this curtain, and the tear started from the top, and God who had been a mystery, God who had been hidden behind a curtain, God who, whose presence had limited access, was opened up for all to come to Him through faith in His Son, Jesus. And the Lord shone out over all of the world and human history. And Jesus did this. He became sin for you and I so that we could have access, access to the Lord. And so this torn curtain speaks of the triumph of the cross. Now, I want you, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. 
Blake's had you in James the last few weeks, so if you were, last couple weeks, if you don't know where Hebrews is, just right before James, okay? Book of James, towards the back of your Bible. And Hebrews is right in front of it. And it says this in Hebrews. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 because the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about that curtain. So let's check it out. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, where I want to hit is these next two verses, but it says this in verse 24. Let us, I'm reading from the NIV. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now this writer talks about some things that we're to do and he says three things drive what you do. As followers of Jesus, three things drive drive them. The, the, the first is this, that, that Jesus has spilt his blood on the cross. So the blood of Jesus is a motivator for your life. The second thing he says is this, is that the curtain has been torn. There is access into the presence of God. And the third thing he says motivates you is this, that you have a high priest. You have someone who mediates on your behalf. His name is Jesus, right? The great high priest. So your life is to be motivated by these things. The blood of Jesus, access to the presence of God because the curtain is torn because Jesus shed his blood, and the fact that Jesus is our mediator. Now these things should motivate something in your life, he says. Three things, and I'm going to focus in on the last one. The first one is this. He says, because of these things, you can draw near to God with full assurance. With confidence. You can come to him in faith. It's like you come to him in faith and it's not me, it's not you, it's not on the basis of anything you've done. You come in faith because you say, Jesus' blood was shed, the Lord tore the curtain, Jesus is my high priest. That's why I come. The second thing he says is this, he he says, you also can hold fast to your confession of hope. The fact that your life is full of hope, the fact that you confess hope in Jesus It's because of the blood of Jesus, because the curtain is torn, because you have a great high priest. And then the third thing he says is this. This means this. It's to motivate you, and you are not to do this. You are not to neglect meeting with one another. And I want to exhort us to that one this morning. It's because of the blood of Jesus. It's because the curtain was torn. It's because the way has been opened by Jesus and Jesus is our great high priest that the scripture says you are not to neglect meeting with one another. It's interesting, the scripture doesn't say the news is your motivator. (laughs) It's not the media. It's not the government. 
It's not a municipality. It's not statistics. You know, actually, as I was preparing this week, I thought, I'll grab a bunch of statistics on what's happening, and I felt like the Spirit of God impressed on me. No, you don't grab statistics. Statistics don't motivate what you do. The Word of God motivates. Tell the church that. Tell them it's the blood of Jesus, the torn curtain, and Jesus as our great high priest. So, you know, I thought I'd get a bunch of statistics but, and, and tell you a COVID joke, but there's a 99.82% chance you wouldn't get it anyways. <laughs> our mandate, our instruction, this is an exhortation, as followers of Jesus, our commands come from the Word of God, church. And the writer of Hebrews says this, you need to consider this. You need to think about this. You need to stop and think carefully about this and weigh this. And this is to motivate what you do and why you do it. And he says, as you consider, you need to think about how you can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I like that word spur. That's in the NIV. The ESV says stir up. I think... uh, some, some translations might even use the word provoke, but the, the original language actually means you need to incite. You have to irritate. You have to be an irritant. Makes me think about getting something in your eye. And you're like, maybe you're like, no, no, you don't have to work too hard at it, Matt. You're irritating me already this morning. No. But maybe, you know, it's like getting something in your eye. It ir- irritates your eye. It's actually the same word here, provoke, spur, stir up is the same word that the Bible uses to describe the disagreement that happened between Paul and Barnabas. Book of Acts tells us about a clash they got into over a missions trip. And it was, I mean, it was a big, it it split the team in two. It's the same word here, spur, stir up, provoke. And it has this sense of inciting someone to an act of love, actually. That's what the motivation is here. It's like incite someone, irritate them to love. Provoke them to love. Spur them on to love. You know, when I was a kid, about 10 or 11, I think, yeah, somewhere in there, I think it was, yeah, yeah, 10 or 11. I used to ride, well, I had a a Norco Spitfire BMX, pretty sweet. Anybody ever have a Norco Spitfire? That was my ditch jumper, jump bike, you know, trick bike, whatever tricks I did. It's usually wound up to me bleeding, right, mom? And uh, it was blue, and it was gold. And then, um, so that was my around-the-neighborhood bike. But when I needed to cover ground, I grabbed my mom's red 10-speed from Sears. You know, it was a Sears bike, straight handlebars, thumb shifters on the top. Really dorky, not cool. It wasn't always this cool. No. (laughs) I'd ride mom's bike anyways. And I remember one time around this time of year that I I was at Cedar Grove School because I went to Cedar Grove and we lived up at the top end of King Road on Judith Place. And I was at the school hanging out with my friends. And then I was time to ride home. So I hopped on my super cool red 10-speed from Sears, my mom's red 10-speed. And uh, started riding down Chester. And I hung that, co- hung that right-hand turn to go up King Road. And King Road has that, on the one side of the road, on the left-hand side there, there's that red and white cottage. You guys know that cottage? You might, if you're, some of you guys know it. That, that, that's always been there as long as I can remember, and it was not as nice as it's now. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, it looked like it should have been torn down. It was always, like, pretty divey, and there was always not the 
greatest characters living in that place. And so at that time, there was this character who had, he'd keep a pit bull at the front door and the back door. So I was always nervous riding in that area. So I was prepared. So I, I come around the corner and I'm riding off the bike, just uh, riding up the road, just cruising along. And from the other side of the street, all of a sudden, I hear something and I look and the pit bull's down in the ditch and out he comes, man. And now he's chasing me. And I'm, you know, shifting gears and putting the, putting the pedal down. And I'm not getting away. And that dog is just coming towards me. And as he gets towards my right-hand side, he lunges at me. And I do one of these and get that foot right back on the pedal all in one motion. And he misses. And it was just enough to, for me to get away. And that dog was going to just tear me apart. And I rode for my life. You know what's crazy, though? When I got on that bike, I wasn't riding for my life just cruising. Just started out on a little cruise, and the cruise had to become a sprint. It had to become a sprint. And the writer says this, you, you have to spur one another on. Church, church, the cruise has to become a sprint now. It's interesting, I was talking with uh, Melissa Russell after the first service. She's She's an ultra-marathon runner. I don't know if you know that about Melissa. So she was telling me about the process of what happens in your body and what happens in your mind as you're ultra-marathoning. And she's like, it gets worse and worse and worse. The pain gets worse. The trouble, the difficulty gets worse as you approach the finish line. And she says, I think that we're living in those days where you just have to focus on Jesus because the trouble is going to get worse and worse and worse. It's one of the under-preached things that the Bible tells us about is the deception that will come over the earth in the last days. Jesus said this, that the deception will be so great that even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. Jesus said that. And so the writer here says we need to spur one another on. And and sometimes the gentle application of a spur does the trick. You know, I think about a cowboy spur in my mind as I see that picture of boot. Other times the spur needs to be planted a little more firm into the side of that beast to to get it moving. Now whatever was going on with the Hebrew church... Apparently, those who were wavering in their faith were absent from church gatherings. And and here's the thing about this passage, as I think about it and as you look at it, it's interesting that the important emphasis of this passage is not about what you get from a gathering. It's about the Lord's command to not forsake such things, to not abandon them, to not neglect them. And too many people show up to church because they are thinking about what they're going to get out of coming to church. But our motivation should be to be obedient to God, to be obedient to the Word of God, to follow His Word and wanting to help one another. You know, I I, I just think, what if we all showed up here with the attitude, who can I encourage today? Who has God called me to serve? Who am I looking for that God just wants me to encourage? Sometimes just faithfully showing up to church encourages people. Don't you feel like that? Sometimes you like walk in here and you're like, you're with God's people and you're like, oh, there's so-and-so. Oh, man, they were on my heart this week. I'm glad they're here. And then boom, you go over and 
you have the conversation, it's no like, oh, you know, crazy spiritual talk. No, you're just like encouraged by one another. You've spurred one another on. And, and, and the writer here says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Interesting. Spur on towards love. You know, when I think about the body of Christ, when I think about this, this tells me that the loving thing is to not stay away. You know, it's interesting. Isn't that what we're being told in culture? It's like, well, if you love my mom, if you love my grandma, if you, like, care about, you stay away. That's not what the Scripture's implying here. It says the loving thing is that you don't stay away. In fact, it's amazing that he connects good deeds to being together. That the Lord actually counts it amongst a good deed. He says spur one another towards love. That word love is agape, agape we say. It's a purely biblical word. It's as like as churchy as you can get. There's no such thing as agape love outside of the family of God, outside of the Lord. And agape love especially speaks of the love of Christians towards one another. Brothers and sisters loving one another and enjoying one another, prompted by their faith in one another to to serve one another. And, and, And agape love can be something that's seen and viewed and is outward expressed, but it can be something that's just in your heart and in your soul and nobody even sees it. You're just like, man, I love the family of God. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The loving thing to do is to not stay away. And I would just tell you, you know, if you're online with us this morning and you've made a decision to stay away, you've been lied to. The loving thing to do is to not stay away. The world has lied to you. You're a part of the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, so we, though we are, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I want to read to you a bigger portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen. We'll pick it up in verse 14. It says this. It speaks of this body, which is the church, which is you and I. It says this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, or sorry, and our our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, 
that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have all the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. You know, I read that, and you know what that tells me? That you are indispensable to the body of Christ. (laughs) Man, do we need you. You're indispensable. You're needed. You're honored in the body of Christ. The Lord has brought you into the body. You have a place. You have a role. When you suffer, we all suffer. When you are honored, we are all honored. We're a body, a family, the church. And this writer says, spur one another on to love, to good deeds. Beautiful acts, that means. Service. Caring for one another, serving one another, doing good deeds for one another. And then he says, let us not give up meeting together. Wow. Does that mean it's meeting together like it's an act of love? It's a good deed? Yes. It's interesting. It says, uh, let us not give up meeting together. Some translations say, forsaking the assembly of ourselves. Don't forsake the assembly. It's the original language means this. It, it means to abandon or to desert, to, to be left behind. Don't leave behind the body. Don't neglect it. I think the ESV uses that word neglect. It means don't fail to pay proper attention to this. Let us not give up meeting together, he says, as some are in the habit of doing. You know, Habits. Speaks of ethos, that's the Greek word, ethos, the habit, the characteristic, the animating principle of a life, the pattern of a life, the the habit, the practice, the culture of a life. I was like, how long does it take to form a habit? Three weeks. By the way, just punch that question into the Google search and see what you get. You'll get all sorts of answers. I saw seven days. I saw three weeks. I saw 30 days. The longest I saw was 66 days, though. That was the longest. 66 days, which I thought, wow, that's pretty long. I think I form my habits a lot faster. I got good habits and I got bad habits. Some of my bad ones I really like. (laughs) Like, you know, ice cream and all that kind of stuff. I got, got, yeah, you know that book, Seven... Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. It's supposed to be really good. I've never read it. (laughs) Uh, Not sure what that says about me, my effectiveness. But I got some habits I really like, you know, coffee. One habit in my life that's just so valuable is my quiet time. Man, more important to me than coffee, anything. If I ever want my day to be off track, I don't spend my time with Jesus. I, I asked my, uh, I asked Lisa and Isabella, what are my bad habits? Tell me what are my bad habits. Like, don't do that, okay? Don't go home. Guys, don't do that, okay? Just warning. Go home. I thought they'd say, you don't have any bad habits. <laughs> Instead, you know, it took them a little bit, but they got rolling. Lisa says, Lisa says, you never, you know, if you go away, you don't want to, like, pack your bag. You, like, will leave your bag and, 
And then Isabel says, you eat all the cookies. I'm like, no, I, I don't do that. That's totally not true. Like, you know, and so they just, they, I said, okay, enough, stop, stop. You know, it's interesting, you know, a habit is like a settled tendency, a practice that you can settle into. And we could say, how long does it take to form a habit? I don't know, three weeks, seven days, 21 days, 30 days, 66 days. This is our 23rd Sunday, church, 23 Sundays. 23 weeks since I think it was March 15th was the last time we got together in normality, normality. Isn't that crazy? Today marks five full months. Five full months. I'm so grateful that we're like meeting in this format because we know so many churches aren't. But what that tells me is this, is it tells me 23 weeks, 23 Sundays, five full months, it means this, that we have settled into fully formed habits. And I'm glad you're here. Some have chosen not to. And I just think habits are formed. They're, they're established. And, you know, I go, I asked the first service this. I didn't, I didn't, like, ask it for a response, but I got a response. I asked this question, you know, what's, what's the longest you've ever gone without worshiping with your church family? Like physically being present together. The longest you ever went. Some of our church family, like I'm speaking to you this morning, I want to exhort you if you're at home. This might be it, five months. <laughs> Carl Green came to me after the service. He said, I did that for one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 18 years. stood right there. He told me, you guys. I said, Carl, can I tell the second service? He said, please. What habits are you forming? What habits are you forming? And the writer, he he interjects. he, He says, you know, let us not give up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but he chucks in that conjunction in there and he says, encourage one another, exhort one another. That's what some translations say, encourage or exhort. And this morning, I want to give a strong exhortation to our church family. Come beside like Ben and her, beside Moses, and hold up arms and, and say, it's, it's, it actually means exhortation. Come right beside someone and take hold of them. And give this invitation to a clear call. An exhortation is to summon for purpose. Church, because of the blood of Jesus, because of a torn curtain, because we have a high priest. That's why the scripture says, we do not give up meeting together. You know, my wife, she's like uh, just purebred German, man. And I'm like Heinz 57 and... And so I'm always fascinated by the German culture around her family because it's just so foreign to me and I'd never learned really any German. But they have this family friend, this older lady. She's a widow. She's 87. And she's one of those people that anytime anybody in the family begins to speak about her, I start cringing because I know whatever story is coming, it's like, 
it's not going to be good, you know. It's going to be about some conflict. It's going to be about something this or that. And she's just a total character with an incredibly sharp tongue, 87-year-old widow. She is no shrinking violet. And this week we, uh, we heard a funny story about her. Well, I don't know. Maybe you won't find I found it funny. But, um, you know, she went to her neighbor. Neighbor's a retired RCMP officer. And being 87, she needed some help around her house, being a widow. So she, she went to the office and she said, she asked them for help with something. And I don't know what it was. I don't, I don't know what it was, what the, what the deal was. Don't know all the details. But he refused her. He said, well, you know, social distancing and COVID and stuff. And so you're 87, but you're on your own. And well, you know, like I said, she's got a pretty sharp tongue, so she had an opinion to share after he rejected her. And she said, you know, if you had been in the German army, they would have trained you to act like a man. (laughs) Wow, eh? I told you. I said, ouch, yeah, I know. Ladies, that's a good one right there. I go, man, some people grow old in grace, and some people just grow old in the grace parts. <laughs> you know, Paul actually said this to the Corinthian church. Paul said the same thing to the Corinthian church. He said this. It's going to be on the screen. First Corinthians chapter 16, he said, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You know, he says, be watchful, be vigilant. The enemy's at work. There's a lion out there and he's seeking prey and he's come to steal and to kill and to destroy. He uses lies. And you're never safe from attack. You're never safe from attack. So he says you need to be watchful. You need to stand firm in the faith. You you need to have mature stability. And the picture that he uses, he says this, act like men. Earlier in this letter, he told this church, you're acting like children. He said, I wanted to call you spiritual. I wanted to address some important things, but you're like infants. You're, you're babies. And the call to act like men is a call to, to say this, put away childish living. Man up. Put it aside and act like a man rather than like a child. And this was a call to courageousness, to bravery for the kingdom of God, to live for the kingdom of God, and he uses that picture of maturity, and he says, let all that you do be done in love. It's interesting, he doesn't say, be a jerk. (laughs) He says, man up and let everything be done in love. But yeah, what makes true biblical manliness godly is that it's loving. Somebody else told me something after the first service, they said, I think, they used to, they said, it's, a, a man is acting in the spirit when he walks in humility and he walks in, I can't, I can't remember what the other thing he said. It was good. I should have written it down or something like that. He tells his church to man up and let everything be done in love. That equals godliness. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines were going to war against Israel and Israel had been defeated on round one, and so they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the camp of Israel, and the Bible tells us that Israel 
roared with so much cheering when the ark of God came into their presence that the ground shook. And it says that the Philistines' hearts melted like wax. And their commander said to them, soldiers, you need to act like men. <laughs> you know, when Job was complaining about the suffering that he was going through and dealing with his friends, the Lord came to Job and the Lord told Job, Job, man up. It's time to act like a man and speak to me. That's what the Lord said to Job. You know, the Philistines actually defeated Israel on that day after their commander said, act like man. They, they defeated Israel and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. And I just think, you know, church, this is the hour. This is the hour for the church to act accordingly, to man up. You know, believers all over the world don't have freedom to even gather there's countries where people cannot even gather. It has to all happen underground. We have the freedom, you know, and they're willing to risk their lives for it. We have the freedom to come together in, in groups of less than 50, and man, I, my heart would be, let's do whatever necessary to have as much of that as totally possible. I'm like hoping in September, as we come out of summer, we'll go to three services. And if we got to do more, we'll do more. And, you know, I think many from previous generations before us, they believed the gospel with, they believed the gospel was of such great importance. They left comforts, man. They set aside the, the value of their own lives. They packed up their home and they went to places that were unsafe. And they did it for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel, the great missionary movements of the past that changed the face of the earth. It happened because men and women laid it down for the gospel. And the Bible just says, don't stop meeting together. Don't stop it. Don't. And he says this, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That means to the greater level, the greater decree, keep it up, man, you know. I've been loving the Canucks, man. It's, been, it's weird having hockey in August, but I'm not complaining. You guys know me. I like my hockey. But during the break... The coach of the Canucks like, told his coaches, you need to bust down our system. We need to take a closer look at our system and see what we're doing and where are we going wrong because we got lots of offense, but we're falling apart in our own zone. And so they went, they, they broke it down, they came back and they said to their players, we need to change this, we need to adjust this, and we need to adjust this. And he said, they bought it, man. They bought it and now look what's happening. Greater attention to detail. Church, all the more. And he says, all the more as you see the day approaching. That's your motivation. You're, you're motivated by the blood of Jesus, by the torn curtain, that access, that you have a great high priest. But as the return of Jesus approaches and the day comes, the great day, I love that the ESV puts that in caps, the day. As the day comes, there'll be more and more evil. There'll be more and more need for encouragement of one another. And there will be more and more need of the people of God to be committed to the assembly of themselves together. Church, let's spur one another on. 
whatever the next season is, whatever is next around the corner, whatever's in the ditch, gear down, man, pedal down. Let's pray. I'm going to invite Martin and the team to come. Would you guys stand with me? And uh, Lord Jesus, we just come before you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that your blood was shed. We thank you, Father, that you tore that curtain. Thank you, Jesus, that you're ever in your Father's presence, mediating, praying on our behalf, seeking your Father for your best for us. Lord Jesus, this morning we just declare our trust in you. We want to draw near to you with full hearts, hearts full of assurance of our faith. Jesus, we want to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Jesus, we want to be obedient to your word that tells us, don't give up meeting together. Lord, would you guide us and direct us in the future as we move forward, Lord? We pray, God, that this little body in Gibson's expression of your salvation, your work, Lord, that we'd bring you much glory, bring much fame to your name, that King Jesus would be honored here and glorified. And uh, Lord, that's our heart. That's our heart. And so Lord, we bless you. Strengthen and encourage your people, I pray. Just as we, uh, as we go into worship, I want to read to you from Psalm 84. It says this, Oh, man. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield. O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you.